people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. It's the podcast into the far right, fascism, and anti-fascism. And today I'm joined by Matthew N. Lyons, who's an independent researcher and writer on the U.S. far right. His most recent book was uh, Insurgent Supremacists, um, which came out with PM Press. Yes. And he's also a long-time contributor to the blog Three-Way Fight, which is partly what we're going to talk about uh, today in the interview. How are you, Matthew? I'm well. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. So... Um, I mean, the, what spurred me to do this interview was you've got a new chapter in a new anti-fascist anthology called No Pass Around, um, which is edited by Shane Burley, who has previously been on this podcast. Um, and that's entitled Three Way Fight, and we're going to discuss some of that today. Um, you kind of opened out the chapter criticising different kind of takes on fascism and the far right. One of them, which I'm very much in favour of, in favour of criticising, um, the idea that um, fascism is like an alien force to Western, you know, a liberal democratic state, states, and you know, is 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 a kind of uh, a kind of alien force coming into a kind of a more benign situation, um, and then the other other end of it, which is that fascism is a tool of, I suppose, a capitalist class. Um, I'm much more sympathetic to the to the latter explanation than the former. Um, but what do these kind of critique um, takes on fascism miss about how the far right, far right operates today? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yes, um, it's it's different problems on on the, the two sides. The the idea of fascism as a as an alien force challenging liberal democratic society is. Um, I think basically misses the reality that fascism as a as a movement as a, as a as a political ideology as a political force is is really rooted in the oppressive and exploitative characteristics of society as it exists and um, that is something that has been more obvious in certain times in places than others but it's it's really you know a consistent uh, feature of, of fascist and far-right politics in, in the U.S. And in, and in all of the countries where it's developed. On, on the other side, um, the idea that fascism is essentially a tool of the capitalist ruling class is um, a, an idea that's fairly common on the left or in many sections of the left. And it is in some ways closer to the mark in that it, it gets at the reality that, that fascism is about intensifying uh, social inequality, about intensifying uh, the exploitation of people economically and in other respects. But it, it I think, really misses an, an important piece of the picture also, because uh, when I look at uh, fascism as a, uh, both in, uh, in the past, you know, over the full century of its history, and as a force today, there are, there are many ways in which fascism has uh, advocated uh, goals and, and, and political ideals that conflict with the interests of the capitalist class. And that has meant a constant tension. Now, there, there have certainly been um, situations where there's been a convergence of interests between them, but it's not a given that those interests are going to align with each other. And if we assume that they are fundamentally in alignment, then we, then we really miss some important um, dimensions of what, what fascism is about. I mean, just the, the whole idea of a, you know, developing a white ethnic homeland, which is, you know, one of the 
sort of core goals of the you know neo-Nazi movement in the U.S. and in in, in other places. Um, that is, I think, fundamentally at odds with the interests of certainly the global capitalist class and the the you know major uh, players in the um, ruling class within the U.S. and, and elsewhere to foster, um, you know, the, the free uh, movement of capital and labor in order to exploit people as fully and uh, uh, profitably as they can. Um, so um, there, there's a it's important that we look at what these movements are actually advocating and what they uh, are trying to achieve rather than simply assume that those, um, you know, that those goals are, are a, a facade covering up their, their real pro-capitalist agenda. I suppose you could also look at it too from the kind of a, the other direction and look at the interests of the, of the capitalist class and the state and see how they manage these kind of very, um, you know, how they manage far-right forces within their societies and within their um, politics as well. I mean, just to bring in a UK context, there's been a big push from the Metropolitan Police, which is responsible for counter-terrorism in the UK, um, to start um, to claim a kind of policing of the far-right and a, 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 a heightened interest in the far-right as well. Um, you know, we, there was a, a guy called Neil Basie who was, used to be the counter-terror lead in the UK who was saying a few years ago that the, the far-right extremism was like the biggest growing um, interest of theirs um, going forward. And, and you can see the interest of not allowing the far-right to, not allowing far-right forces within a society to get too out of control or too unmanaged, as it were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, I mean, in a capitalist society, the state exists in order to fundamentally in order to protect the interests of the ruling class, to protect protect the stability of society to the extent that that's needed to um, keep the profits flowing and to keep the you know the the social relations. Uh, functioning in, in a way that's uh, in the interests of the elite. And the uh, activities of far-right forces may threaten that. And to the extent that they disrupt what, um, you know, the state, you know, the state is trying to do, then, then they do represent a threat. Now, that, that may just be a matter of a you know an annoyance if these are relatively small forces, but um, they can they can be a you know a, a significant threat. I mean there have been instances where uh, you know far rightists have literally uh, declared war on on the, the the state and and that that's resulted in in the crackdown. Um, so um, I think that. Um, you know, we need to not assume, you know, looking at the, the interests of the capitalist state, not assume that it is simply going to work through, you know, right-wing forces in order to um, achieve its, its ends. It's, it's, it's a much more complex and, and, and often a more sophisticated um, set of activities that it, it involve a combination of repression and co-optation of various kinds of social and political forces. Um, uh, capitalists have have used uh, liberal and progressive and you know social democratic uh, political forces in various ways. Um, and uh, so it's you know they have have many more options and and you know different uh, political approaches that can. Uh, serve their needs at different different times and places and and you know the the, the far right uh it you know may be uh in some situations may be the most useful um uh forces for their purposes but but again that's not a given and it's not always going to be true 
So the, the three-way fight model, which is counterposing, which, which you know, says that the far right has a contradictory relationship to the state and to capital, as well as to the forces that oppose it, um, anti-fascist, leftist, the kind of broader civil society, I suppose, more generally. Um, how much is that model uh, like a US-specific one? and Or do you think it's this, it, this kind of um, analysis is, has application outside of, of America? Mm-hmm. Well, um I certainly think that um, there's significant um, variation or, or differences uh, from one country to another or one time period to another uh, in terms of the relationship between far right or fascist forces and, and the state or, or the ruling class. Um, and the the U.S., the United States has been the primary focus of, of my, my research and my, my work, my analysis, but, but certainly not the only one. Um, and, but I think that um, I, I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, claim that, you know, the, the, the whole analysis applies in the same way in, in, in all situations. So, I mean, for example, if we looked at um, India, um, with um, the Hindu nationalist movement, um, which is, you know, probably the largest single uh, right-wing or far-right movement in the world, with you know, you know, hundreds of millions of active participants, and and you know, this is a movement that is currently in power under the the government of Narendra Modi and has been for a number of years. Um, that movement. I mean, there's disagreements about whether you should call it fascist. I mean, it, I would say it's either fascist or something that is very closely and 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 intimately related to fascism in terms of you know having a, a comprehensive vision for transforming society um, based on uh, you know principles of of inequality and exclusion. But that movement has developed a very uh, uh, amicable relationship with uh, uh, capitalist uh, rulers, um, at least in, in recent years. Um, and it's, it's managed to avoid uh, a lot of the kinds of uh, tensions that we've seen in, in the U.S. and a number of other countries. Um, so, you know, that's certainly a, a different situation. But I think that, um, that you know, some of the, the basic underlying principles of, of, of the three-way fight approach still apply. I mean, it, it's, again, the, it, it, the, if you're looking at Hindu nationalism, we can't assume that it is simply a, um, a mask for pro-capitalist interests, that it is, you know, that when they, um, you know, call for um, I- imposing their um, notion of a you know a Hindu society uh, that that that's insincere. I I I I think that we need to take seriously that this is a, a movement of people who who mean what they say uh, basically, and uh, if that um, movement aligns in this particular situation with ruling class interests, then that's something we need to uh, acknowledge and, and, and uh, seek to understand. But it's not something that um, is, you know, sort of an automatic, um, you know, expression of, uh, you know, their, their role in the political, uh, political spectrum. So I, I think that um, there are there are different situations. I mean, you know, just to look at another example, uh, you know, with the um, the current uh, war in Ukraine between Russia and, and, and Ukraine, um, those are two countries uh, where uh, fascist forces have played a significant role on, on, on both sides, really, uh, and it's it's actually kind of striking that. You know, it's a war where, among other things, fascists are fighting fascists. Now, that, that doesn't mean that that's all that's going on. But, but 
um, you know, the idea that, um, you know, fascists are all united uh, is, is clearly not the case here. Uh, and in each case, in, in different ways, both in Russia and in Ukraine, there's a somewhat complex relationship between fascist and, and non-fascist forces. I mean, in, um, in the Ukraine, um, you know, fascists played a significant role in the Euromaidan movement of um, uh, 2013, 2014, that uh, uh, toppled the, the former government and installed a new government. But it's, it's really not the case that that was a quote-unquote fascist coup, as has been portrayed uh, by, you know, the Kremlin and, you know, uh, some others. Um, and on the other side, you know, Putin's government in Russia is, it's clearly a right-wing authoritarian government that has significant ties with fascist forces in, in various ways. But I, I would not, uh, I don't think it's accurate to call it a fascist government, but, but rather it's a government that, you know, where, where there's, um, uh, you know, an, an important kind of synergy or, or symbiosis there. Um, so in each, in each uh, country, there could be, you know, a different kind of relationship that, that develops. Yeah, and just taking the war in Ukraine as one example of a, of a, a kind of a failure of analysis, people have a tendency to like try and to they're either on one side or the other, and they'll like the way they'll kind of justify their support of of Ukraine's resisting Russian aggression or Russia invading Ukraine is they'll point to the other side and say they're the ones with the fascists on it, and therefore the other side is the anti-fascist side, and therefore we must support the anti-fascists. Um, which is obviously a, a failure of analysis and, and, and kind of a deeply cynical move too. Um, just going back to history, taking a more historical question, um, I suppose when you're comparing the US and Europe, it's, it's easier to, I suppose, discern what is a fascist, where is fascism begins or what is a fascist movement in Europe uh, than it is in, in America. Um, why do you think that is? What is the what is the kind of differences in the U.S. history that that means that there's this kind of much more complicated, or at least much more uh, a different kind of development of of the far right in America? Mm. Well, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I mean one you know just obvious point is that the the term fascism comes from Europe, uh, you know, comes from Italy. Uh, and so if we're looking at, you know, where was, you know, their first, you know, where did the concept of fascism uh, first appear? That's, you know, that's easier to identify. And then it's, it's relatively easy to look at, you know, what were the immediate predecessors or forerunners of, of that movement in, in Italy and in, in, in other European countries. And it, it is, it is somewhat trickier in the U.S. And I mean, I think, Part of the issue here is, you know, what do we mean by fascism? And I don't want to get into a, a, a whole, you know, in-depth discussion about definitions. But... I don't want to either. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say, I, I mean, you know, it, it, the term fascism is sometimes used very broadly to refer to, you, you, you know, a kind of uh, authoritarian, racist, uh, mass movement that um, um, you know challenges just you, you know the, the 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 notions of human rights and human equality, and if we look at the United States, you know if, if we're looking at you know what are movements that have tried to mobilize large numbers of people in order to. Uh, expand and intensify white supremacy, you know, white racial oppression, you know, really you'd have to go back uh, almost 200 years to the origins of the Democratic Party under Andrew Jackson in the 1820s and 1830s, because that's really how that, that, you know, political party formed as, you know, as a, as a way to kind of mobilize uh, white working class support in alliance with not only um, 
you know, merchants and industrialists, but, you know, the slave owning classes of the South, um, very directly in opposition to abolitionism and, you know, in favor of expanding slavery and expanding, uh, you know, settler conquest and, and genocide against native peoples. So that, you know, kind of major dimension of fascism has been kind of baked into the U.S. political system from, you know, close to the beginning. Um, but then, you know, there are other elements that, that are missing. I mean, I, I, I think the um, another kind of important reference, um, reference point is the, uh, the original Ku Klux Klan in the uh, late 1860s, so the period immediately after the American Civil War, when there was the period of uh, Reconstruction, and in the uh, former Confederacy, there were uh, new state governments formed in which black men were eligible to vote and uh, hold public office, uh, in many cases, for the first time. And uh, this was a, you know, a major challenge to the social and political order that had gone before. And the Ku Klux Klan formed uh, as a kind of quasi-guerrilla movement to not only physically attack and terrorize uh, black people, but also to essentially overthrow the state governments in, in, in these uh, former Confederate states. And so this then brought in some other elements uh, that I think are uh, associated, you know, with with fascism as we think of it now. One is um, the rejection of uh, so-called liberal democracy. You know, the, the rejection of the established political system in 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 a very active physical way. And another is um, that you know these. Uh, the the clan uh, propagated a a myth of redeeming the South of 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 restoring a, uh, a, a, a an order that had been had been toppled and and that needed to be uh, brought back and and um, this is um, very much related to uh, uh, an idea that uh, the uh, fascist, fascism scholar Roger Griffin has introduced, the idea of the myth of palingenesis, of uh, that fascism um, calls for a, a collective rebirth. It says, you know, our nation or our people have been in, you know, gone through this terrible crisis and we need to, you know, have a, a, a new birth of, of um, society and, and and you know our race or our people out of that uh, period of crisis and and you know so you know a good half century before uh, people were saying this in you know the fascist movements in Europe the Klan was saying this in in the the American South so that's a, another element that kind of got introduced and I think it's one of the reasons that. The Klan, as a as a particular um, um, incarnation of white supremacist activism, that 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 is something that's come up and it's been reborn or or uh, revived again and again in, in U.S. history. Um, but unlike fascism, the Klan was really all about restoring what had gone before, whereas I see fascism as Sort of taking elements of the past, but creating, you know, some kind of a new society, so that in you know, in recent periods, uh, a pivotal point uh, in terms of the U.S. far right was the shift from uh, segregationism of trying to protect or restore the old system of, of Jim Crow segregation um, that was dominant in much of the U.S. And replacing that with the notion of a, of a white homeland, saying that you know segregation is is dead. It we, we we cannot go back to that. What we need to do is 
fully separate the races and um, create a, a completely separate nation. So again, that, that notion of a, 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 a radically new society based on kind of old supremacist principles. Um, so, you know, getting back to your question about, you know, how do you sort of, where do you find the sort of beginning point of fascism in, in the U.S.? I, 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 I guess I would say that it's, it's been in some ways sort of a gradual process of, of, you know, sort of different elements that have been introduced at different points. And it really isn't until the 20th century that you start to see uh, all of these elements coming together in, in something closer to the, the modern form. Yeah, you, you kind of at the end of your answer, you brought me on to the next question quite neatly, which is is about this kind of insurgent, um, insurgent su- supremacist kind of uh, phenomena that is now kind of the US far right, I suppose, with the rise of the kind of more explicitly neo-Nazi movement, um, which is it's a, it's a kind of a, I mean, if you look at it on face value, it's a, it's a, a strange time for a, a, a neo-Nazi movement to appear, you know, the end of the 1970s, Second World War has been done for decades, and, 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 and like you said, the, the kind of clan wars, the kind of, I suppose, dominant, uh, uh, kind of thing on the U.S. far right uh, for a lot of for lot of lot of its history that existed. What spurred the change from 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 the clan? I suppose from the clan to uh, neo-Nazism and all the whole wave that happened in the eighties with the Order and you know various kind of white nationalist and white separatist uh, movements. Well, uh, it was I think very much a reaction to the kind of social and political and cultural transformations that we associate with the 1960s you know i mean it's really longer process than that but but the um uh the civil rights movement and the the black liberation movement more broadly which challenged the um you know, kind of old order of uh, sort of formal, legally sanctioned system of racial hierarchy, uh, Jim Crow segregation in the South, but also, you know, other um, forms of, uh, you know, more or less legally sanctioned racial discrimination in other parts of the U.S. also. Uh, So Black liberation movement that uh, you know, certainly didn't overthrow racial oppression, but significantly, uh, you know, forced a change and, and delegitimized the kind of open uh, racism and, and open racial discrimination that had, had been enforced before. And then partly uh, inspired and, and uh, you know, spurred by that uh, Movement. You had, you know, a number of other kinds of social forces: the the you know women's liberation movement, the lesbian and gay uh, rights movement that started uh, in a in a major way in the late '60s, and 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 a number of other um, um, social movements and 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 uh, initiatives that kind of transformed the um, the U.S. Uh, culture and politics. And which um, exerted pressure on the capitalist system and and pushed it to <clears throat> institute some genuine uh, reforms and 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 limited changes that um, were threatening and uh, uh, seen on the on the right as as fundamental betrayals. Um, and so you, what you started to see in the 1970s um, was sections of, you know, the white supremacist movement saying, okay, we used to believe in, in the United States as a, as a country, as a, as a system of government in which we could live according to our ideals and our principles that is no longer possible. The United States has betrayed us. The United States has abandoned the 
principles of white supremacy and the principles of, you know, inequality that we hold dear. And therefore, we need to um, rebel uh, or, or, or we need to um, draw a line uh, against uh, that system. We, 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 we need to reject the... Um, the U.S. political system. We need to reject the the kind of direction that the that the state has taken, and that's why you started to see, in in small ways in the 1970s, but really in a in a big way in the 1980s, um, sections of the white supremacist movement um, making that shift from kind of uh, you know segregationism, a, a kind of you know conservative or reactionary kind of political stance into uh, what I would call a right-wing revolutionary stance, not revolutionary in any sort of liberatory sense, but in the sense of, of you know, literally of trying to overthrow the government or at least, you know, secede from it. Um, and you saw the, the, the formation of, um, you know, whole armed underground of uh, neo-Nazis and, and related forces forming in the early 1980s as well as, you know, um, above ground support networks that, um, you know, were uh, more or less aligned with them around the same kind of goals. So that was really a, uh, a, major, um, a major turning point um, that, uh, you know, really shifted the you know, not only what the movement was about, but what its relationship with the state was, what its relationship with, um, you know, with the established order was. I, I suppose I had a, a, a question about about this in second uh, far right, and I suppose to do with America as well, which is that one major difference between um, the US and Europe is this kind of very militant gun culture that, you know, is kind of ever present in the US and still is today. And you can see it in in your chapter for the for the No Passeran anthology and in other work you you discuss you know the neo Nazi movement of the eighties the Patriot Militia movement of the nineties and then the alt right and in all all three of those movements you know gun culture and the fear of 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 the government taking guns away seems to be a con- consistent theme and I wondered what kind of role does this um, does the kind of the image of the or the you know guns as objects does that play within this insurgent far right I mean obviously they're used to commit violence and robberies and all this stuff but there seems to be something something deeper going on in, in it's hard to like it's, it, I don't want to like kind of start you know um, casting kind of big overreaching statements about the soul of America or anything because that's 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 silly but you know the, the gun culture is deeply embedded in in, in the US yeah yeah uh, uh, yes it, it certainly is and and I, I I agree that there's that there's it's a very important theme if you look at the, the US far right I mean if, if you look for example at the book the Turner Diaries by William Pierce which is a uh, a, a, a neo-Nazi um, futuristic novel that was uh, written in the 1970s and and envisions a uh, a white supremacist revolution that overthrows the U.S. government. The way that that novel begins is with this image of uh, uh, government forces together with you know black gang members going house to house and taking away people's guns. So it's 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 like that that scene is that's the starting point for. You know the imposition of tyranny, and that 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 notion comes back uh, again and again in in, in far right propaganda. I I, I think that um, you know the, the the role of gun culture in the U.S. I mean, it's obviously a huge question, but I think one um, one element that uh, is important is the way that um the the US developed as a as a settler colonialist society so you know from the colonial period the the um uh 17th century uh, uh, uh and later um it 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 
it involved, so on the one hand, there was the, um, the mass importation of uh, enslaved Africans to, to work the land under white rule, but then also the, the forced uh, expulsion and, and land conquest of, of native peoples. But in, in both of these uh, dimensions, you had um, a, uh, a recruitment of masses of white men in order to enforce order. It wasn't simply that the state sent its you know, uniform, uniformed uh, officers in order to, quote unquote, keep the peace, but, but you know, in, in, in many, many communities, it, it, it was more that, you know, every white man was expected to play a role as an enforcer of, of the social order. And um, the gun was an important tool. Uh, and so the notion that all white men should be armed was something that, uh, you know, it's, it wasn't that it was, you know, universal given, but it, it, it's been a major theme. It's that that's, that's been integrally tied to the way that um, order and hierarchy have developed and evolved. It's a very sort of decentralized, it's connected with a very decentralized notion of social oppression um, that I think is distinctive to the U.S. I mean, it's not unique, but, but it, it, it's connected with that, that kind of settler colonialist uh, dynamic. And um, so uh, that then has been a lot of the kind of um, the, the reservoir of sort of um, the, the sort of historical and cultural legacy on which the modern far right has drawn. Uh, in terms of the kind of mythology and the kind of iconography that it's it's invoked, but 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 also just in that sort of very you know material um, reality of the distribution of these tools for killing people or terrorizing people, um, and it's. It, it, it is a complicated history because a another side of it is that people resisting that social order and that oppressive system have also taken up the gun. You know, I, I, I mean, there have been many, many instances through U.S. history of uh, communities of color. Uh, defending themselves. I mean, you know, in the Southwest, you had uh, Mexican uh, communities resisting, uh, you know, white settler oppression, certainly, you know, Native communities and, you know, the, the so-called Indian Wars, uh, the um, uh, Black people, um, Slave revolts and and the the you know through to the um, the kind of armed resistance offered by um, uh, Robert Williams in the 1950s, the Black Panthers in the 1960s, and um, so the gun as a, a as a tool that that can be a, a tool of resistance as well as a tool of oppression is that's part of the story also. Um, and uh, so all of this, you know, has contributed to a, a current day situation where there's a lot of people with guns. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it, it, we laugh, but it's 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 a it's a very you know, there are there have been many confrontations where it's a very, very dangerous situation. And, um, it, it, you know, it's it's something that. Um, I, I think that that's only that's that's certainly going to continue, and it's not it's not something that you know can simply be be taken lightly, or or you know it it, it has all kinds of implications in terms of um, you know security and just how do you organize people and how do you um, try to uh, affect change in ways that don't get people killed. 
Yeah, I mean, just think, just thinking about anti-fascist demonstrations or concentrations in the street that you know I've been involved or like been around, and you know, you can be like essentially a hundred percent certain that no one has a gun in that situation, and then obviously the same can't be said um, in the US. Um, so these these three movements that you you, you discuss, um, I suppose that there's a there's a kind of natural development just because it, you know that's how time works. Uh, but also, um, I just wondered what you thought, um, how much of these kind of distinct periods um, that are kind of reacting to the conditions of the time, you know, the neo-Nazis of the neo-Nazi movement of the 1980s, um, the Patriot movement of the 90s, and how much is there kind of a development with these movements and how much did they kind of learn from the past? Um, I, I know the kind of, if we take a, a more modern example, um, the Atomwaffen, the kind of, their veneration of, of siege is a you know a, a massive callback to to the the newsletter siege of the of the nineteen eighties for example. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that um, I mean there there are certainly there are important connections, and I and I would say that um, just in in very broad terms, there are there are more connections between the. Patriot movement of the 1990s and later, and the neo-Nazi movement of the 1980s, than there are between the alt-right and the other two movements. Um, I mean, the the Patriot movement, it's tricky because there are some people who claim that it it, it was simply a, a new version of the neo-Nazi movement in the 1980s, and that's really not the case. I would say that it, what happened in the 1990s is a number of different right-wing forces came together and developed a kind of a new grand coalition around some, some core ideas and some, some, some core uh, principles, um, you know, in very broad terms, the, the idea, you know, they put out this idea that there was a, uh, a, a, a plot by globalist elites to impose a dictatorship on the United States. And so that we needed to, you know, they needed to organize um, uh, armed citizen militias, so-called, and various other kind of forces in order to uh, protect against this threat. Uh, that idea was partly um, inspired and and shaped by some of the neo-Nazi activism in the 1980s and attracted some veterans of that that earlier movement. But it was also very much influenced by other non-Nazi right-wing forces, uh, such as sections of the Christian right and um, groups like the John Birch Society, which is a you know, right-wing conspiracy theory uh, proponent uh, and, and, and other forces. And, and so it's, it's, it's an oversimplification to say that the Patriot movement just sort of continued what the neo-Nazis had been doing 10 years earlier, but there was some degree of continuity between them or connection between them. When you get to the alt-right in the 2010s, um, it's somewhat of a different story in in the sense that um, you don't have the same kind of continuity. Um, The alt-right was um, an offshoot of a certain branch of the conservative right, of uh, so-called paleoconservative forces, um, who, uh, among others, were associated with uh, Patrick Buchanan, who had run in the Republican uh, presidential primaries in the uh, 1990s um, uh, 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 around a, a platform of um, economic protectionism, so opposition to free trade, anti-immigrant uh, politics, hostility to um, so-called globalist elites, 
calls for the U.S. to scale back its military presence around the world and, you know, various other things that sort of went against the kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of expansionist pro-free trade um, uh, model of conservatism that was dominant. Anyway, so this paleoconservative current kind of interacted with some other more kind of explicitly racist uh, political forces that were not rooted in the Nazi movements of the past, but were sort of more sort of presented themselves as more sort of respectable, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, quote unquote, intellectual um, versions of uh, racial ideology. And the alt-right was also very much influenced by the European New Right, which was a movement that um, I think started particularly in France and, uh, you know, was developed in a number of other European countries around sort of the idea of reworking traditional far-right ideology in order to kind of make it more palatable in a, in a modern context. So these are all sort of elements that influence the alt-right and, um, you know, we're in, in some ways very much, um, you know, had shared principles or underlying, uh, ideas with neo-Nazism, but, but we're, you know, organizationally and, and, you know, chronologically just, you know, very, very separate in terms of development. Another element that sort of then also contributed to the alt-right a few years later was the um, uh, so-called manosphere, the, the, uh, uh, the kind of very aggressive, misogynistic online culture of um, um, anti-feminist men's activism that developed in starting around 2014 or so. Uh, as an organized force and then sort of um, converged with the, the sort of more racially oriented uh, alt-right forces that had, had emerged a few years earlier. Yeah, we, we wrote about that in our, in our first book and, you know, I think there's an essay Roger Devlin or something, which was a, a touchstone and, and was originally published in the White Supremacist magazine. Um, yeah, I had a I had a question about the LaRouche movement, but I'm actually running out of time, and it's a bit, I am I am fascinated, but also it is a little bit of a detail for for the kind of general topic of the interview so far. So I'm just going to brush past it, but yeah, very strange. <laughs> um, oh well, maybe actually I can work it in a little bit. I don't know. Okay. Um, so I think one of the one of the interesting takeaways I had from from either the essay or the book. I, can't remember which um it's the kind of idea of um the far right um having a kind of similar on surface level similar kind of explanation or similar kind of analysis of this current present situation of the world with um i suppose the revolutionary left or the far left you know uh, ordinary peoples are impressed by a by a, a like a, a force above them um that kind of kind of dictates what what you know what they do with their lives and and and, and leeches um, energy and, and money and you know and control you know extracts profit from them essentially and from their labor um, and of course the difference is like who those elites are and what we need to do about it and you know that's the difference but in that kind of ambiguous kind of frame there is a kind of an, an, an uh, I suppose an opportunity for for the far right an opening for the far right to to kind of enter into leftist spaces or leftist politics and engage into dialogue and build these kind of, you know, there's a big fears. Uh, there's oftentimes people talk about kind of left, far left and far right collaboration and the, the production of kind of a red-brown uh, alliance, which has become a, a kind of an overused, I, I feel, kind of touchstone for some people, but um, I think is a, a real phenomenon also. Um, how does how does you know I suppose how do we within leftist movements how do we kind of one kind of recognize that as it's happening resist it uh, and you know kind of how does that how does that operate? Hmm. 
Well, I, 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 I think I agree with your, your overall assessment. I think, I mean, red-brown, the sort of red-brown alliance or convergence is, is exaggerated in, 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 in some cases. It's, it's, I mean, the idea, I, I definitely don't agree with the idea that, you know, that, that the far left and the far right sort of inherently converge. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's didn't, yeah. complete. I know you're not saying yeah, that, yeah. But, <laughs> but that is an idea that's out there. Um, but I do think that there are instances of this kind of convergence where, you know, in, in specific situations, which are, um, are, are disturbing and, and dangerous and something that, that needs to be combated. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, this is something that has been a phenomenon, you know, th throughout the history of fascism. I mean, let's remember that, you know, Mussolini was himself a veteran of the Italian uh, socialist movement. And he, you know, was, you know, a very prominent leader and, until he was won over to a kind of right wing nationalism and then created this, you know, or helped to create this, this new phenomenon that we know as fascism. And, you know, over the decades or the generations since then, there have been various instances of some leftists being won over to the far right uh, uh, on the basis of, you know, opposition to the established order or, or you know, some other kind of points of uh, commonality. When I look at it um, as, a, as a current day, um, phenomenon. I, I think that it tends to play out around certain um, specific areas of political focus or, or areas where um, the left and the far right may seem to be saying similar things. Uh, I think one of these in particular is the issue of uh, anti-imperialism or, or anti-militarism in the sense that, um, uh, you know, for some decades now, uh, many far rightists in the U.S. and in um, many European countries have been very critical of um, U.S. and other Western military um, uh, interventions uh, in various places and have criticized these um, in terms that on a surface level uh, may sound progressive, may sound leftist. Um, and um, this has to do with the notion of you know the 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 um, the fact that many far rightists are hostile to what they call globalist elites you know but which I think is approximately um, coterminous with you know transnational capital um, as well as you know the the kind of governmental and semi-governmental institutions that are related to it, you know, like the International Monetary Fund and uh, the United Nations and things like this. Um, but, um, you know, there is this idea that um, uh, too many people on the left have that if you're opposing, you know, U.S. imperialism, U.S. intervention in, say, the Middle East, uh, that, that you're on the right side, whereas, in, in fact, there are, you know, people who are very much opposed to those things who are, do so out of um, far-right uh, principles. Um, so that's, that's one sort of area where um, there's a problem, and I've seen that directly in... in uh, uh, anti-war activism in the U.S., you know, the movements against the, the U.S. Uh, war with Iraq 
first in 1991 and then in 2003. Um, you had far-right forces associated with the Lyndon LaRouche uh, fascist network that were very much opposed to those interventions along with you know, other right-wing forces, certain kinds. I think another area where this comes up is um, environmentalism, environmentalism, where, um, uh, again, the, you know, in sections of the left, there's sort of this assumption that if you're concerned about environmental problems, if you're concerned about, um, uh, you know, climate change or, you know, other kinds of um, environmental issues that that's inherently progressive. But, you know, we need to remember that there is a long tradition, um, specifically within the Nazi movement, of, um, uh, you know, a kind of emphasis on nature and respect for nature and uh, getting in touch with nature that in that context is, is uh, associated with, um, you know, fundamentally racist and nationalist uh, principles and ideals. Uh, and so you see that coming up in, in uh, various versions in, uh, in more recent uh, time periods. And, and there have been instances where um, environmental or ecological activists coming out of a more of a leftist um, uh, background have kind of converged with some of these uh, uh, far right forces, and so that's that's um, that's something to to be aware of. And I guess the the third um, area that I I see is particularly salient here is um, around uh, issues of um, transgender rights and, and transphobia, where you have, um, you know, um, in, you know, it's a pretty recent uh, upsurge of um, trans activism and, you know, growing recognition of the reality of uh, the oppression of trans people as, as, as a major problem. And you have a um, uh, an increasing focus by sections of the right on um, uh, targeting trans people as as a kind of a a, a, a particular um, area of focus, and I think I mean I, I, I think that's been true in Britain as well as the U.S. and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and there are sections of the feminist movement that unfortunately have uh, embraced a transphobic. Um, um, stance in, in, in a kind of, you know, I would say a misguided notion of, um, upholding and defending women's rights, um, rather than recognizing that these are, you know, that, that women's oppression and trans oppression are integrally connected and, and need to be combated in, in conjunction with each other. So that's, um, that's an area where, um, I, I think that um, whether or not it's directly in terms of uh, organized fascist um, forces, there, there's at least the, the, the uh, problem of, of a kind of political convergence in, 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 uh, in some circles. Just, uh, I suppose, last question wrapping up now. Um, just going back to the three-way fight and this analysis, um, we talked about what what that means for how the far right operates, but I wondered what your take is of sorry. I wonder what your take on how anti-fascism operates in this analysis. How do you think anti-fascists should approach their work in light of this kind of framework? And and kind of finally, um, there's always been this separation between anti-fascism as a kind of specialized movement and kind of the broader left or broader kind of liber liberatory politics? And how do you think those things should relate also? Hmm. Um, let me answer the second question first and then come back to the first one. I, I think that um, it's, it, it's very important for the left as a whole to take 
anti-fascism seriously as as an important area uh, that, that you know that that, that needs to be addressed. Um, and it, it, I would hope that uh, given the successes of the far right in recent years, that um, we've gotten past the idea that um, the far right can simply be dismissed as a secondary problem or that it's simply um, a, a corollary of um, you know, capitalist oppression. That we need to uh, confront it as a, a, a force and a danger in its own right that um, uh, needs to be understood on its own terms. In terms of you know what three-way fight means for anti-fascism, and I think that you know part of it is um, you know again just just the need to take fascists and, and far-right forces seriously, um, to um, take, uh, try to understand what they are saying, what they're, what they're trying to achieve, um, and to pay attention to the differences between different kinds of right-wing forces, um, because those differences have strategic implications that um, if there are some forces that are basically aligned with the state or aligned with the ruling class, that's a very different kind of opponent than those forces that are trying to overthrow the government or are trying to, you know, uh, target um you know, rich elites. And, and so those need to be, um, you know, things that we, we try to grapple with and try to make sense of. Um, I think that, you know, if I had to sort of reduce it to a slogan, I would say, you know, part of, you know, one of the things that 305 is about is no alliances with fascists, no alliances with the state. We need to resist and reject, on the one hand, the calls for um, joining forces with far rightists against the established order, whether that's around you know opposing imperialism or some other focus. But we also need to resist calls to uh, side with the state against the far right. We need to be very wary of calls to build up the state's repressive apparatus in the name of anti-fascism, which is something that um, you know many liberals have uh, have advocated. Um, that we need to remember that. The enemy of our enemy is not necessarily our friend, and um, this is—it's not just a two-sided struggle. That's what three-way fight means. Great. Um, so actually, um, I'm in Liverpool, and the radical bookshop there has a copy of Insurgency Premises. Um, so I've bought an actual physical copy instead of relying on my PDF, and I recommend everyone also buy the book too. It's, it's a really good read and really useful also. Um, the anthology uh, No Pass Around is out now, I think, with AK. Uh, you can go check their website for more details or check Shane's Twitter um, to see you know, if any events or anything's happening with it or anything like that. Have you got anything you want to, to plug or, or kind of promote um, to the audience? Well, I, I, I would encourage you know, people to check out both of those books. Uh, and, you know, the No Passeron collection has many very uh, uh, valuable and, and helpful essays by a, 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 a wide range of, of contributors. So, uh, you know, I have one chapter in there, but there's a lot of other things in there that, that are, are, are um, well worth reading. Uh, otherwise, I would say, um, you know, check out the three-way fight blog. We we 
posts um, periodically uh, essays and short posts on a variety of topics. And uh, you can see pieces by me and by uh, others who, um, you know, uh, addressing these, these same kinds of uh, topics. Great. Okay. Thank you, everybody. And goodbye. Thank you. It's going down and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.